What is going on? This is John from Prodigal Church. We're so glad that you've chosen to listen today to our weekly teachings podcast. At Prodigal, we're all about two things, loving God and loving people. The best way to stay connected is to download the Prodigal Church mobile app available at your app store. There you can donate, watch past series, and stay up to date on all things Prodigal. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Hey Prodigal, welcome to week two of the Jesus series. And this morning, Pastor Forrest Jennon, lead pastor of Neighborhood Church in Visalia, will be here sharing God's word with us. Uh, We're gonna be looking at what Jesus said, what Jesus taught. And Forrest is not only a pastor of a Jesus-centered church, um, he leads a Jesus-centered family, he's a Jesus-centered man, and he's a close personal friend. And so I know he's gonna do an incredible job. So sit tight, relax, and check out week two of the Jesus series. Well, hey, Prodigal. Uh, hey, if we've not met, my name is Forrest, and I'm actually really good friends with your pastor, John. And I, I love him. I think it's fantastic. I love your staff. I, I pretty much love everything about your church. And I especially love that you're in a teaching series that you're calling the Jesus series. Who he was, what he said, and why he died. I mean, I just love that. I mean, after all, Jesus is the most influential and most interesting man to have ever lived, right? Because by his names, billions of people curse, and in his name, billions of people pray. From countless paintings, statues, buildings, from literature and history, from personality and institution, from profanity and popular song and entertainment media, from confession and controversy, from legend and ritual, Jesus of Nazareth stands quietly at the center of our contemporary world. I love how the late Christian author and USC uh, philosophy professor Dallas Willard uh, talked about Jesus. He, he said it like this, I think we finally have to say that Jesus's enduring relevance is based on his historically proven ability to speak to, to heal, to empower the individual human condition. He matters because of what he brought and what he still brings to ordinary human beings, living their ordinary lives and coping daily with their surroundings. Similarly, the English writer and historian H.G. Wells, right? He's famous for books like War of the Worlds and Time Machine. He said this about Jesus. I'm a historian and I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. And let me give you one more. The 18th century pastor James Allen Francis in his famed sermon, One Solitary Life, wrote, All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. And finally, arguably Jesus' best friend, John, when considering just who Jesus was and reflecting on his time spent with Jesus, wrote these words. Life was in him, a life that made sense of human existence. And listen, within the Christian tradition, we sum all of this up by simply saying, Jesus is the center of of our faith. Jesus is unrivaled in history and in eternity. For the Christian tradition, Jesus is 
always our lead story. And last week, you all began the series by looking at the historical, religious, and political landscape that Jesus operated in. Last week was really sort of getting to know Jesus through the space that he existed in and how that helps us understand who he is and what he is trying or is still trying to accomplish, right? And so today, all I want to do is sort of build on the foundation you were given last week and take a quick look at what Jesus said. Now, Jesus said a lot. So please know today's really about painting with a very sort of broad brushstroke, right? I mean, we're just going to be scratching the surface a little bit. But the primary idea we need to understand is that the sayings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the things Jesus said are all about introducing people just like you and I and inviting them to live into, here it is, a new way of being human, a new way of living, a better way of loving. Jesus was giving us a road to take, a path to follow that leads us um, to thriving as people and becoming the very best version of ourselves. In fact, Jesus even describes himself as the way, right? And his original movement for the first few decades before they were, people were ever called Christians, those who, those who were on the outside looking in, observing Jesus' people, referred to them as people of the way, because it was obvious from the outside looking in that whatever these people believe, right, they didn't know, but they could tell you this, that these were people who lived differently, that they had adopted a particular way of living that's identifiable, and it leads to human flourishing. You know, Jesus said it best, right? He just said, listen, I've come that they may have a life and have it to the full, right? If you've ever wondered why Jesus came, he told you. He told us, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, right? That's Jesus's desire. It's why he came, to teach us how to live a full life, to live into all that it means to be a person. Jesus came to introduce us to our humanity, to show us how to thrive and flourish from our humanness by modeling a lifestyle completely dependent on God, led by an ethic of uncompromising love for other people. Jesus came to remind us of who we really are. And in Jesus's life and his teachings, what he said, we see this road back to our divine heritage, right? We get a crystal clear picture of our true identity. And, and this is important. And let me tell you why. See, I think sometimes religious traditions sometimes teach us or may have taught you that at, at one point that our humanity is something to be resisted that our humanity is something to be managed or maybe even abandoned altogether. You may have been taught that our humanity is inherently broken beyond repair, that all we can do is sort of manage our mess and hope for the best in the life to come. That's not true. That's not what Jesus said. It's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus doesn't call us to abandon our human nature. He invites us to truly understand it and embrace it, to get back to our roots, to step into our role as God's image bearers on earth, to be truly human. And so I would just say this, don't let sort of religion confuse you. 
The way of Jesus isn't about repression. It's not about sin management or self-pity. No, it's about embracing the person you were always meant to be. It's about becoming the very best version of yourself for the benefit, and this is important, for the benefit, not just of you, but of the whole world. The way of Jesus isn't a, a life vest to help us survive our own brokenness. No, it's a jetpack that launches us into our true potential. Again, I, I love, there's, a, there's a, a seventh century theologian, his name, great name, Maximus the Confessor. He said it like this. I mean, just as clear as possible. Jesus showed us an entirely new way of being human. Right? That's it. Jesus showed. What did, what did Jesus say? Well, he said a lot, but ultimately what he was saying was he was offering up a new way of being human. That Jesus came to launch a new humanity that looks like, and this is important, love. Jesus' new humanity looks like love. Jesus is who God always intended humanity to be and who humanity truly is. And all of this being human stuff, it's such a big deal to Jesus that it is the theme for his most famous sermon. Did you know that? Today we call it the Sermon on the Mount, right? Now, it's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is said to have given the teaching on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And I've actually had the chance to go to what's today called the Mount of Beatitudes. And I've actually read the Sermon on the Mount looking out over the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it really is a powerful experience. And Jesus' teaching on the mountain is all about how to have this full life he came to bring to live into our humanness. The sermon really is answering the question, what does it mean to be human? And what's interesting, and maybe you didn't know this, what's interesting is central to Jesus's answer to that question, what does it mean to be human, is this, is being happy. See, for Jesus, human flourishing requires happiness. In fact, Jesus's sermon introduction is all about happiness. And, and, and listen, this is what I want to talk about to, with you this morning. Jesus said a lot, right? I mean, so much. We could spend, I mean, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks talking about, really our whole lives, talking about what Jesus said. But what I have found so interesting of late is that so much of what Jesus said had to do with your happiness. And in his most famous sermon, in his most important sermon, he opens it by giving us a roadmap to happiness, right? And how our happiness defines what it means to be a thriving, flourishing human. Now, before I read you what Jesus has to say about happiness, I, I need to get us on the same page regarding the word Jesus uses. See, we're about to read a series of eight statements um, that outline outline Jesus's thinking on happiness. Again, they're the, they're, it's the sermon introduction to this Sermon on the Mount thing. And in your English Bible, each of these eight statements will begin with the word blessed and not happy. Now, the biographer who record, records Jesus's words, his name's Matthew, uses the Greek word makarios. And we translate that into our English word blessed. But here's the deal. The Greek word makarios actually means, doesn't really mean blessed, um, literally. Actually, it means fortunate or exceedingly happy, right? So this morning, I just want you to know that I've exchanged the word blessed for the word happy. And before you email John about the heretic guest speaker that he brought in, just know I think that I'm allowed to do that based on um, what Matthew wrote all those years ago. He wrote a Greek word that we can translate exceedingly happy or just 
happy because what Jesus is doing is he opens his most famous sermon with. He's saying, listen, this is what happy people do. This is how happy people behave. If you want to be happy, um, here's what you should do and here's how you should think. Here's the posture you should adopt. Jesus is giving us a description of happy people. And so what we're going to do is I just want to read through these verses, this sermon introduction. And I'm just going to make a few comments on our way through these statements. And then at the end, we're going to step back and say, okay, what's the big picture? What was the main point Jesus was trying to make about happiness? What do all of these happy statements sort of have in common? So with that said, let's get into this. Here's what Jesus said. Happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. This is interesting. Jesus is opening a sermon and he goes after perhaps the biggest happiness myth of all, right? And that is rich people are the happy people, right? But this myth fails to deliver again and again, right? It's interesting. There's this classic study um, that compared happiness levels from Illinois state lottery winners and recent accident victims who were consequently disabled as a result of their accident. And the two groups were asked to rate the amount of pleasure they got from everyday activities, small but enjoyable things like Chatting with a friend, watching TV, eating breakfast, laughing at a joke, receiving a compliment, things like that. What was interesting is when the researchers analyzed their results, what they found is that the recent accident victims reported gaining more happiness from these everyday pleasures than the lottery winners. Because even the thrill of winning the lottery wears off. We think money will bring us lots of happiness for a long time, but in reality, it brings a little happiness for a little bit of time. But Forrest, you may say, Jesus doesn't seem to be talking about money here. He says poor in spirit, not poor in bank account. You're right, but let me show you how the two concepts connect. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that no matter how much you have or how little you have, you, ha you are completely dependent upon God every single minute of every single day. Poor in spirit are people who embrace their daily dependence on God regardless of what they have. I love how a pastor out of San Antonio, Texas, named Max Lucado, has called poor in spirit. He said, poor, people who are poor in spirit, they're, they're just beggars in God's soup kitchen. I love that image, right? Here's the deal. The moment we transfer our trust from Jesus, who richly provides, to our own riches, we become unhappy. And here's why we become unhappy. Because suddenly now it's up to you, it's up to me to control outcomes. And you can't control outcomes. You can influence outcomes a little, but at the end of the day, none of us control outcomes. And the moment that I place my trust in my riches instead of Jesus who richly provides, suddenly I take upon myself a responsibility that's just simply too big for me to carry. This is why you've met unhappy poor people, unhappy middle-class people, and unhappy rich people. Anyone who's feeling the burden of it's up to me is by definition unhappy. And Jesus says, let me tell you who the happy people are. They're rich, they're in the middle, and they're poor. It doesn't really matter how much they have because the happiest people recognize their happiness isn't from a bottom line, but a proper perspective. A perspective that says, I'm dependent on God for everything, including my very next breath. So that's the first one. Happy are the poor in spirit. But let's keep going. Jesus has a lot to say. He said, next, he said this. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you know who mourns? 
Mourners are people who are emotionally connected, people who recognize and don't hide from or don't run from the fact that there are bad things in this world. There are unjust things in this world. There is randomness in the world. And they're willing to walk into those moments of death and grief and sorrow, right, and tragedy. And they're willing to stay there and face it full on and embrace the fact that death is actually a part of life, that sometimes things go sideways, right? Happy are those, Jesus says, when they're faced with the fact that this life comes to an end, who are willing to face it, feel it, endure it, be a part of it, right? Happy are those people. Because what you'll find is that you'll find contentment and happiness when you're willing to deal with the tension that as much as you want life to go perfectly, it's not right? You will find contentment and happiness in that space far more than if you spend your life trying to pretend like that's never going to happen to someone you love. But Jesus continues. He says, happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, this one feels so strange to me because meekness feels a lot like weakness. And this would have been a crazy statement, probably the craziest of all statements to Jesus's listeners. See, and you've talked about this already, in Jesus's day, the world would have been conquered by the Roman Empire. And Rome had carved up the world from England to India. They were this massive global military superpower. And what would happen is the Roman army would show up on your doorstep and they would say, we need you to confess Caesar as Lord or we will kill you and destroy everything you love. So you would, and uh, you would confess Caesar as a Lord. And essentially at that moment, you would be a conquered people. And then you would be taxed so that the empire could continue to move forward, conquering away. And the Romans had come into the land that Jesus was born and born in and raised in, and they conquered it. And this cast a huge shadow of shame and confusion on the Jewish people because this was not how it was supposed to go. Because the Jewish people believed our God wins, not the Romans but the Romans won, right? So what in the world's going on? Where's our God in all of this? So when you ask the question, who gets the earth in the first century? Well, the answer is simple. The Romans get the earth because they had literally gotten the earth at the time of Jesus. People with big swords get the earth. Right? But, but Jesus, he stands up in, the, in this massive public gathering and he says, blessed or happy are the meek, they get the earth. Wait, what? No, that, that can't be right. The Romans inherit the earth. Strong people inherit the earth. Uh, right? the, the varsity team gets the earth, not the freshman team. This was backward. This made no sense. This was flying in the face of what everyone just assumed to be true. Jesus now must be crazy. He's been okay up to this point, but this is crazy because everybody knows the strong, the well-educated, the athletic, the pretty, right? The people who seem to have a knack for using what they have to get even more, right? It, it seems like everybody sort of gets their, those kinds of people get the earth. The thin, the fast, the disciplined, the people with the right last name, the people who have the energy to do everything. They're the ones that get the earth and I'm left missing out. Do you ever feel like that? Right? I know I do. It seems like there are those people who make life easy and it just makes sense. And it's those people who get the earth. And Jesus stands up and says, I know it appears that God is running around blessing and favoring the strong, smart, beautiful together people. But let me tell you, it's not how it works. 
you, the person who feels average, the person who feels overlooked, the person who feels scared, the person who feels tired, you. God's favor is on you. Happy are the meek. Then Jesus keeps talking and he says this, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled, right? Happy are those who commit to doing the right thing. Happy are those who've chosen to live in such a way that they've minimized guilt and regret in their lives and they're living with a clear conscience. Happy are those who are committed to doing the right thing even when it costs them. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not saying happy are those that check off all the right religious boxes so you can feel superior to people you've determined haven't checked off those right boxes, right? And as a result, create boundaries to keep the people who are different than you out. No, right? Rather, it's more appropriate, I think, to understand Jesus's words are happy are those who hunger and thirst to live out Jesus's ethic of love, even love of my enemy. And Jesus says, at the end of the day, those who hunger and thirst to, who are hungering and thirsting to learn to live out of this sort of other-centered love, right? Happy are those people. What, what one author of scripture simply called the most excellent way of love. Those who are leaning in and asking the tough question, what's the loving thing to do? What does love require of me in this moment? At the end of the day, if this is your approach to life, Jesus says you will be happy. Okay, Jesus isn't done. He says some more, and he says, happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus is essentially saying, happy are the relationally generous people. Uh, Happy are those that give people exactly what they don't deserve relationally. Happy are those who aren't seeking revenge. Happy are those who forgive. Happy are those who don't hold grudges. Happy are those who put away bitterness. Happy are those who are not waiting to be paid back from someone in their past, right? No, Because you know this, you've never met a happy, better person. You've never met a happy person who holds a grudge. You've never met a happy person who's waiting to be paid back from some previous relationship. No. But what you have met are people who've decided to extend maybe to their father exactly what their father didn't deserve. They decided to extend to their boss exactly what their boss didn't deserve. They decided to extend to their ex-husband or ex-wife exactly what their ex-husband or ex-wife didn't deserve. They were relationally generous. And even though they were never paid back, and even though they they never exacted revenge, and even though they never got an apology, and even though the person that offended them never owned up fully to what they did or said, these people, Jesus says, are the happy people. But Jesus says some more. And he says, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Okay, I I think this statement of Jesus... um, makes us initially think about following the rules, right? Um, But that would be, I think, an adventure in missing the point. Rather, I think this statement points points us back to the idea of integrity, Uh, maybe more specifically about the idea of being honest with ourselves, right? And Jesus says, listen, I just want you to know um, the clarity that you need for your life The capacity to identify and see the activity of God in the world, it's found in your capacity to see yourself, to be honest about what's really going on with you, to be pure in your own heart. Not perfect, just honest about who you are. There's a fifth century church leader named Augustine, and he said it this way. He said, how can I draw close to God if you are, how can you draw close to God if you're far from your own self? So he says this prayer, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. 
Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are those who have been honest with themselves because they've cleared the path to honestly seeing God. Honesty creates clarity, and clarity, Jesus says, produces happiness. Jesus still isn't finished, and he goes on and he says, Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We're living in a world committed to creating, I think, two sides and then forcing us to choose a side. Are you with them or are you with us? Are you with this group or are you with that group over there? Are you for them or against them? Right? And, and what our world does is it's given us, I think, this endless supply of two options. Are you here or are you there? In or out? Wrong or right? Right? As, as if the world's that simple. But Jesus comes along and he invites us into a more beautiful way of living, I think. Not as side, not as side choosers, but as peacemakers. Right? When you, and when you really get and grab hold of what Jesus is all about, one of the first things I think you have to do is um, you have to get rid of your old labeling system that you used to use to put people um, in, in their own little boxes. Because once you grab onto Jesus and this, this most excellent way of love, labeling people doesn't work anymore. Sides don't work anymore. Camps don't work anymore, right? No, because I think pre-Jesus, right, we used to join in with the friends and say, yeah, them over there. But all of a sudden, now you've met them and you've become friends with them. And all of a sudden, it's not as easy as it was to just label that group them over there. Happy are the people who, who work to bring down the walls that divide us, right? That's what I think Jesus is getting at when he talks about happy are the peacemakers. But Jesus has one more thing to say. And he says this. Jesus says, um, happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this life, in your life, you're going to suffer for either, either for doing the right thing or you're going to suffer for doing the wrong thing. But Jesus says you can only be happy on one side of that equation, right? You can't be happy on the other side. You can be happy when you're persecuted for doing the right thing because at the end of the day, you have peace with you and you have peace with God. But if you suffer for doing the wrong thing, you don't have peace with yourself and you don't have peace with God. And Jesus just draws us into this broader context saying, listen, just think about it. In your life, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be mistreated. Do you want to be mistreated for doing the right thing or do you want to be mistreated for doing the wrong thing? Happy are those who, when it comes down to it, choose to pursue love even when it costs them because you can be happy doing the right thing and facing the consequences. So, I hope you can tell by now that Jesus said a lot. This is just the introduction of a much longer sermon that Jesus gives. But when he gave us his best sermon, he set it all up. Here's what I want you to hear with eight statements that give us a framework for what it means to be happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, hungry for living out the ethic of love. Happy are the merciful, the pure in heart, right? Those that are honest with themselves, the peacemakers, the, the persecuted for doing the right thing. Now, I told you, we'd pull back and say, what's the common denominator in these eight statements, right? I think there's one takeaway from everything Jesus said as he introduced his most famous sermon, and, and here it is. Happiness is an outcome produced by the decisions we make every day. Happiness is an outcome produced by the decisions we make every day. Happiness is, here's what I want you to hear. Happiness is a result. I think that's what Jesus is saying. It's a result. Happiness is about something now that leads to something later. Happiness is more about ultimate than it is immediate. Happiness is not immediately accessible. I think we could say that. 
In other words, here's what this means. It means you, can, you, can hear, you can't hear a song, you can't read a book, you can't hear a message like this and then walk away and say, you know what? I was unhappy at 12.30, but at 12.35, I'm happy now, right? I did it. I heard the thing. I read the thing. I prayed the prayer. I went to the deal. I went to church. I, I even took notes. I think Jesus' point in regard to happiness is no. Happiness is better than that. It's richer than that. It's deeper than that. Happiness is the inevitable result, Jesus is saying, of a life committed to the most excellent way of love that he came to introduce to us that leads to this human flourishing business. Now, Jesus spends, again, the next 20 minutes unpacking exactly what all this looks like. And you can go read that for yourself this week in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It takes 19 minutes. But for today, I think Jesus is just saying, I have some great news. You can decide your way to a happy life. Happiness isn't random. It's an outcome of the decisions you and I make every day. Jesus opens the sermon and he says, let me give you eight statements, really eight decisions that you can make that will result in your happiness. Again, Jesus said a lot, but what we can't miss is what Jesus said about your happiness and mine. Hey, awesome. Thanks for letting me hang out with you for a little bit. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. What a friend I found in you, Jesus. What a